Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Hope Community Church Podcast. Hope exists to love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we believe that as we partner with God in His mission that we can see a world changed. Listen, if you're looking for notes to the message you're about to hear or links to other messages, we want to encourage you to check out the link in our description. If you're looking for more content and resources that we believe will be a blessing to your life, feel free to check out our YouTube channel or download our free app, which is available right now. If this message is a blessing for you, we want you to consider sharing it with your friends and family as we hope to get the message of Jesus spread across the globe. Thanks for joining us. Well, how are we? We doing good? Good. Well, we are continuing our series on deconstruction. And if you're just joining with us, that's just a term that kind of describes the process that a lot of Christians are going through where they're doubting um, and really questioning some of the key uh, foundational truths of their faith. And there's actually a movement of people doing this. Some people are going all the way and deconverting and leaving the faith. Uh, but some people aren't. We learned last week that this can actually be a healthy thing, that we can actually build a stronger foundation upon Jesus and have a stronger faith than if we would not have kind of questioned some of the th these things before. So thank you for all your kind emails and your text messages. It seems like God did something awesome last weekend, and I'm praying that he does the same uh, this week. Uh, one of the first things that people begin to ask questions about or to ask questions about or have doubts about when it comes to Christianity and the faith is the Bible, is the Bible. And I get it. Um, this can be a very, very confusing book. It's actually uh, 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years. And so the newest book that we have in this collection, this compendium, is 2,000 years old, which means the oldest is 3,500 years old. And it's written in three different languages and it's written in a variety of different historical contexts, and it can be super confusing. And so we're going to try to answer some of the questions that people are asking and really uh, coming up against about the Bible. And I just got to let you know, this week's very um, personal to me. Um, I fell in love with this book in about eighth grade. I remember the day that I decided to bring it to middle school, and I was going to read it um, during my off times in class. And so I brought my NIV Bible that I would take to church but never read on my own. And I just started reading it from cover to cover, and I fell in love, and I haven't stopped reading it from cover to cover uh, since. And so I've probably um, come into contact with more questions and more doubts than most people in this room. And what I've tried to do, because I've built my life on this book, and I've devoted my life to understanding it as best as I can, and to uh, teaching people to obey it and to understand it as well, I never try to brush off doubts. I never try to just say, oh, that's stupid. That's not a valid argument against the Bible. I really try to take all of these questions as seriously as I can um, because if I'm going to build my life on this, I want to know that it's a solid thing. And so I'm going to be sharing some of the light bulb moments that I've had in my life because I didn't fully understand this, and I still don't, uh, but I certainly didn't when I first started reading it and falling in love with it and learning about it. And there's been a few light bulb moments in my life that changed the way that I, I thought about this book and understood how it was written and how it functioned and God's purposes for it. And I want to share some of those light bulb moments with you. In fact, uh, we already answered one of the biggest questions last year. It was during uh, the Asking for a Friend series. You guys remember that? And uh, one of the biggest questions people have is, is this the accurate words that were originally written down in the original manuscript? So I hear a lot of people say, isn't this kind of like a game of telephone? 
Like, you know, when you whisper something in someone's ear and then they whisper it and they whisper it to someone else and by the time it gets to the end, it's like not what the original person said whatsoever. So hasn't this been translated so many times that we have no idea what the original authors actually said? And so you can go back and listen to that sermon. It's actually not a sermon. It's like a 40-minute college lecture where we talked about uh, the Greek and we talked about papyrus and textual variants and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we figured out that, yes, this is miraculously accurate to what the original authors wrote. In fact, it's 99.999% accurate. There are a few words, less than a quarter of percent of the words in this Bible we're not quite sure on. Uh, but that handful of words doesn't change the, the foundational theological principles or truths of Christianity whatsoever. We know that that is the case. So if that's where you're struggling, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that church lecture. Um, but something that I came up against um, early in college, actually, as I was a biblical studies major, is people said, okay, this is accurate, but is this an accurate lie? Like, instead of saying, did God really say these words, people were asking me, hey, but did God really say these words? Like, is this the accurate collection of the perspectives of flawed men and women, or is it the actual, literal, inspired words of God? And when I first came upon this, I, I wasn't quite sure how to answer it, because I was reading books where um, one progressive Christian author writes this, the Bible is a library of books reflecting how human beings have understood the divine. People at that time believed that the gods were with them when they went to war and killed everyone in the village. So what you're reading is someone's perspective that reflects the time and the place they lived. It's not God's perspective, it's theirs. And when they say it's God's perspective, what they're telling you is their perspective on God's perspective. Don't confuse the two. So this guy is saying, no, 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 this is just the perspective of men, not the words of God. And when you first hear that, what do you do with that? And so I spent a long time researching this and reading as many books as I could in college. And what I realized pretty quick is that there's, there's two kind of ideas. There's one word that I saw pop up time and time again. Uh, and it was used by my Bible study uh, professors at, at Liberty University. And it was also used by the people that didn't believe that the Bible was the word of God. And they used the same word and meant something entirely different from it. It's kind of a complex word, but it's called progressive revelation. Can you say that? Progressive revelation. You sound smart at dinner tonight. Um, but what that means, when, when my college teacher would use that word, what he meant was that the authors of the Bible received more and more truth over time. Right? So uh, the author of Genesis, uh, or, or the, the, the um, Adam, Adam and Eve in Genesis, they understood some basic, basic truths about God. But then Noah understood even more. And then David understood even still more. And then the disciples that walked around with Jesus, they knew even more truth until finally those who wrote the New Testament really understood all that we really need to understand about God. And uh, so the Bible kind of reveals more and more truth. God slowly pulls back the curtain and reveals more about himself over time. But then when someone who doesn't believe in the Bible used that term, when they, they would still use it, what they meant by that term is that what the authors wrote got truer and truer over time. So in this view, the book of Genesis is less true than the book of Matthew, which comes later. Or to say it another way, um, the, the earlier books in the Bible contain more mistakes and more misunderstandings than the later books. And even those later books aren't perfect and still contain untruths and lies about God. And this is why they say, hey, didn't people use the Bible to support slavery? Well, that's why, because there's truths and lies in there. 
Or didn't people use the Bible to take away the rights and the privileges of women or non-white ethnicities? Well, that's why they did it, because it's, it's filled with all these discrepancies. And when you're walking through these doubts, it kind of seems like you have to choose a side, what your Bible, my Bible teachers in college said or what some people that have doubts about it were saying. But as I read and listened to both sides really carefully, I realized really quick that they had something in common. My Bible teachers at college and the books that they were recommending were filled with people that really loved Jesus. And I love Jesus. We had that in common. And then when I would talk with people that didn't believe that the Bible's God's word, strangely, they would say, they actually don't believe it's God's words because they love Jesus as well. They would say that we love Jesus so much and so want to live out the lifestyle and the things that he taught. That's why we actually have to throw away large portions of the Old Testament. Because the Jesus that we see in the New Testament would never agree to or sign off on the stuff that the flawed human beings in the Old Testament taught. But I see there's something in common there, right? And so when, when I was under uh, trying to figure out the answer to this question, I said, well, let, let's try to figure out what Jesus said about the Bible, right? Because we do have an accurate collection of what he taught and what he believed. Everyone's agreed on that. So what does Jesus have to say about the Bible? Did Jesus think that the Bible was literally the word of God? Or did he think that it was something else? How would Jesus answer the question did God really say? And that's the question I want to try to answer today. Does that sound okay? Good. Well, in my kind of pursuit to answer this, I saw really quickly that you actually don't have to turn very far in the New Testament to get an idea of what Jesus thought about the Bible. It's actually before his public ministry even begins. It's in Luke chapter 4. It's right after um, he's baptized and uh, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Look at what Luke 4, 3 says. It says, Then the devil said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Like, you've got to be hungry. You haven't eaten anything for 40 days. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. So he quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy. I didn't know that at the time, but my footnote in my Bible told me, and I went, went back and checked it, and sure enough, that was right. Look at verse 5. Then the devil told him, uh, took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they're mine to give to anyone I please. I'll give it to you if you will worship me. And Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So again, he quotes out of a verse from Deuteronomy. So then Satan thinks, man, this guy's quoting, quoting scripture at me right and left. He thinks pretty highly of this thing. Maybe I can use that against him. And look what it says in verse 9. Then the devil took him to uh, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. He's quoting from Psalm 91. But Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. So again, he responds with a quote out of Deuteronomy. And by his first three responses, I could see, and hopefully you can see, some things that Jesus thought about the Bible, even the Old Testament, which is the part that a lot of people want to throw away because they want to be like Jesus. He thought, if you can see this in the first response, he thought that scripture was vital or it was really important. Like he's almost starving 
And the devil's like, don't you need some food? He's like, you know what I need more than food? I need the word of God. So whatever that means, it's a pretty high view of scripture, isn't it? We can also see that Jesus thought it was authoritative. Um, he thought that he should obey scripture. Right? The Bible says don't worship anybody else besides God. And even I, as the son of God, need to obey that. But he also thought that it was coherent. And this was my first big light bulb moment. And what I mean by that is Jesus knew that you had to read it in context. And if you do that, it doesn't contain contradictions. So he knew that Satan had misinterpreted that verse about angels catching you out of Psalm 91. Because he knew that you had to read all scripture in context. You have to read the verses before and after it. You have to take into account what type of literature it is. Is it history? Is it um, a song like the Psalms are? Is it poetry? Um, is it a, a parable? Is it, is it like revelation? What, what sort of thing is it? And if you go back and read the Psalms, what type of, of literature is the Psalms? You can just yell it out. They're songs, right? And songs aren't really meant to be taken literally. There's some metaphors in songs. There's some, some similes and symbolisms. Like when the Baja boys asked who let the dogs out, no one literally let the dogs out, all right? They weren't searching for it. Like, it wasn't literally raining men. That would be like a national emergency. Can you imagine? That'd be scary. So when you read Psalm in the Psalms that God's going to catch you when you jump off a roof, no, no, it's about the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God, but you have to read it in context. You have to figure it out what it meant by the original author and what he meant when he wrote it to the original audience. Otherwise, you can just make the words mean whatever you want them to mean. And this is what a lot of people do. And I was talking to people who would ask those questions. Hey, wasn't the Bible used to support slavery? And I would have to say, yeah, it was. That's true, it was. Well, wasn't the Bible used to take away the rights of women and other classes of society? Well, yeah, it was. But then the people I was talking to would jump to this conclusion. Well, isn't it true that the biblical authors didn't understand things like gender or racial equality? or the dignity and worth of individuals and things like that. And I had to look at them and say, that's absolutely not true. And I know it's not true because I've read it. And a lot of times when I have these discussions with people that are having these huge doubts, they simply haven't read it. Like they've read a Reddit post or they've, they've gone online. But I think a lot of the hurdles and hangups and doubts you might have with the Bible at this moment would be solved if you just spent six months and read it cover to cover. But if you read the Bible, and I did, what I began to understand is, first, a lot of what's written in the Bible is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It describes things, but sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, it describes things, it doesn't prescribe them. So you'll read in the Old Testament, a lot of guys have lots and lots of different wives. But God never says, do that. That's the right thing to do. In fact, that was Solomon's downfall, you see. Um... The Bible's different than any other holy book in that way. Like every other book of religion, the human characters in it are meant to be the heroes, not the Bible. It's filled with flawed human beings. We're not meant to model our life on any of the characters there except for Jesus. God's the hero. But secondly, those people that use the Bible to support slavery use the Bible like Satan used that psalm. They misinterpreted the Bible and they took little parts of sentences out of context. Well, how do you know that? Because I've read the verses that people use to support slavery. And all you have to do is read the sentences before it and after it. 
to figure out that's not what it really meant. But secondly, and this is something you really need to think about, if this is where you're struggling, if this is your biggest problem, as I read this and I began to study church history and really world history, what I noticed is this. Were it not for the Bible and the things that the Bible teaches, the world would have never received ideas like racial and gender equality, like the inherent values or individual rights and worth. These things didn't exist until Christianity the Bible was the very first document to say there's no difference between slave and free, male and female, or Jew and Gentile. In fact, uh, Roman men used to hate the church and they would mock it by calling it, that's a religion of women and slaves. Why? Because slaves flocked to it. And so did women from all classes of society because they were treated with dignity and worth. The Bible is the very first document in human history that says, husbands, honor your wives and because they're co-heirs, they're equal with you in God's grace. And I found dozens and dozens of really world-changing teachings that the Bible, in the Bible, that literally shaped the deep-held commitments that we have in Western civilization. In fact, there's an atheist author named Luke Ferry, and he writes this. He doesn't like it, but he writes this. I must recognize that we essentially have human rights in our world because of Christianity. It's quite clear in this Christian's reevaluation of the human person that the philosophy of human rights, of which we subscribe to today, would have never established itself. And so when I was having these, these conversations, there were these people that were opposed to the Bible because evil people had used it to take away rights, or, to, or they were opposed to it because of these deeply held values that the Bible itself gave them. And in my mind, that just lended more truth and validity to the Bible. So right off the bat, Jesus obviously thought the Bible was vital, it was authoritative, and it was coherent. So it seems like he has a pretty high view of Scripture. But he says more than this, and I'm going to read you this passage. We're just, we don't have time to talk about like all the cultural nuance here, but I want you to notice one word. It says this in Matthew 22. Then surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they replied, he's the son of David. And they thought he was going to be a literal human being, not divine at all. Then Jesus responded, then why does David speaking, underline this, under the inspiration of the Spirit, call the Messiah my Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? No one could answer him. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He's quoting out of Psalm 110. We don't have time to get into that Lord thing. But notice that he, under, he said that David was under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so Jesus thought that the Scriptures were inspired. And I had heard that word growing up, but it wasn't until later in college I realized that I thought it meant something than how Jesus meant it. Um, uh, it wasn't... It's not an invention. So David, when he wrote Psalm 110, he didn't sit down and look at his different experiences with the divine and consult what do, what do other people in the pagan religions think about God and kind of compile the best thoughts that he could about God. That's not what it's not invention. But it's also not dictation. And this is what I thought growing up. But God did not spell the Hebrew alphabet. It would go this way. It's backwards. The Hebrew alphabet in the cloud so that David could write it down. God didn't literally audibly whisper in David's ear, write olive, bait, gimel, dal, like write these letters in a row. It's not that. It's inspiration. 
It's God speaking through his spirit through David. And the best way that I can understand it, it's like if we had um, Chris Crowder is our drummer. He plays all sorts of instruments. You know that? He plays bass. He plays keys. I don't know if he plays sax. But if we got him out here to play sax, if we got like an amazing jazz saxophonist out here, and they started playing like an original piece, no one in the audience would be confused, kind of like elbowing their neighbor. Is that, is that the saxophone making that music, or is that the musician? Right? We would just know. No, no, no. The musician's the one that's actually making that. The breath and the tune are coming from the musician. They just kind of pass their breath through the instrument, and that makes the music audible. And the writers of the Bible are like that. They're the instruments of revelation. So they all make different noises. There's an oboe here, and a clarinet there, and a trumpet there, and a saxophone, and a Genesis, and a Leviticus, and a Psalms, and a Micah, and a, and a book of Luke, right? Um, but the musician, the artist that fills them with his breath and makes sure that the notes are correct, that's the Holy Spirit. So that's how inspiration works. It's not David's words, and it's not the audible voice of God. It's God's voice, and his words pass through the Spirit inside of David. In fact, Peter, who was standing beside Jesus during this very conversation, a few decades later would write this, 2 Peter, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Or from human initiative. No, these, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, you might know. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. And so Jesus, we want to model our life on his teachings and his traditions. He thought that the Bible was inspired. But he says another thing, and it's in Matthew chapter 5. And this is the biggest light bulb of all, Okay. It's during his Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever wondered about those weird commands in the Old Testament? Like, there's some weird ones. There's not as many as you might think, but in Leviticus and in Book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's some laws about, like, you can only get within a few feet of mold or mildew. Like, how is that spiritual? That's weird. Or uh, we're not, you're not allowed to wear uh, mixed fabrics. So most of y'all probably got cotton polyester blend. Uh-uh, couldn't do that in the Old Testament. Right? It had to be cotton or wool or something like that. How is that spiritual? That's weird, right? And I hear this all the time because someone will type on Facebook or online, you know, God's word says marriage is between a man and a woman or, you know, abortion is wrong. And then right underneath it, okay, God commanded that, but do you still sacrifice goats? Like, do you still wear single fabrics? Like, you can't say one command's more important than the others aren't. Or what about when Jesus says, you have heard it say, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Right? You've heard it said, do not work on the Sabbath. What did Jesus get in trouble for a lot? Working on the Sabbath. So that sounds like Jesus is saying we don't have to follow the commands of the Old Testament. It sounds like Jesus is saying the Old Testament is wrong, doesn't it? You ever been there before? Well, look at what Matthew 5 says, and this is super profound. This is Jesus talking. Don't misunderstood why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings or the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament, right? The Pentateuch, the poetic books, and the prophets. No, and underline this, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail, or in your translation, jot or tittle, like when you cross a T, that's a jot. When you dot an I, that's a tittle. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. 
So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying something very profound here. He's saying he didn't come to end those laws. He came to fulfill them. He's saying that all those weird commands in the Old Testament, they're a good thing. The laws and the commands are true, but you have to understand the reason or the purpose that God gave human beings those laws. And what I used to think, and what I guarantee 90% of you listening right now think, is God gave the laws. Why? So that if we obey them, we get to go to heaven. No. That is not why God gave us the laws at all. Again, Christianity is so different than other religions. It can be super confusing. Well, why did God give us the laws? Well, first, in order to reveal his character and what his expectations of human beings are, like his followers. We should be like him. So God is holy. He's completely pure and spotless, isn't he? And his, his followers should be as well. They shouldn't be tainted by anything, of which mold and mildew is a symbol of that. Well, God's different than all the other gods, isn't he? Like, he exists, <laughs> and uh, he's faithful and answers his promises. Well, his, his followers should be different as well. They should act different. They should think different. They should talk different. They should dress different of which those mixed fabrics are a symbol of that. So that's, that's one reason that God gave the law. But secondly, and this is big, he gave all those laws also so that he could prove to us that we could never meet all of them on our own. He gave us that long list to show that we aren't good enough to fix ourselves. God gave us those laws knowing that no one was ever going to follow all of them. That's why he gave them the sacrificial system. So that when we messed up and we deserve judgment, he said, well, I'll judge the animal instead of you. And so God gave us all of those commands to show us what he expected of us and so that we could learn that we could never meet those expectations on our own. Isn't that weird? God was like, hey, if you want to make it to heaven on your own, here's what you have to do, but you're never going to do it. And they're like, you watch us. And so they go out and they come back a day later. All right, we messed up, but give us another try. He's like, sure, make sure you sacrifice. All right, go on, get after it. Come back a day later, okay, we messed up a whole lot again. But let us, let us try one more time. We're going to do it. Well, we can't do it. Maybe our kids can do it. And over and over and over until you get to the end of the Old Testament. And they're like, God, I'm starting to believe that no one on earth can never be good enough to make it to heaven. And God said, now you're ready. That's what I wanted you to see the whole time. The law was meant to show us our need and prepare us for a Savior. That's their purpose. So then Jesus came and started a new phase in God's plan. Now through his life and his death and his resurrection, those laws, they're not these scary things written on tablets. They're written in our hearts and we actually want to obey them. Now we're not clean and pure because we stay away from mold or mildew. That's smart. But because we're washed in the blood of Jesus. Now we're not different just because of the way we dress, although we dress modestly, you know but we're different because of our faith and our hope in Jesus. Now we don't have to sacrifice animals because Jesus died once and for all. But that doesn't mean that the Old Testament or the laws were pointless or now untrue. See, the law was meant to show us that we need some outside help and to send us to Jesus. And then when we go to Jesus and get that help, Jesus sends us back to the law, to the Old Testament. 
so we can remember God's holiness and his glory and his wonder and realize this is what he expects of me. I can't do that, but Jesus did. How thankful I am for that. These are God's expectations that I could not meet, but Jesus did that for me. So yes, some of the laws are weird. And we obey those laws in a different way now that we have Jesus, but we can't throw away those parts of the Bible. Jesus is saying the whole Bible is purposeful. The Old Testament wouldn't make sense without Jesus. And Jesus doesn't make sense without the Old Testament. It goes together. Every jot and tittle were given by God for a reason, for a purpose. So I was learning that, man, Jesus thought, taught us and thought, the Bible's vital, it's authoritative, it's coherent, it's inspired, it's purposeful. And I learned a whole lot more. In fact, there's five more things that I want to share with you, but we do not have time in my two minutes I have left. But real quick, we'll move through these real quick. Jesus also taught that the Bible was canon, not like a pirate ship canon, like a canon with one end. It just means that the 66 books in here, they're the inspired ones. And the other ones that claim to be, they're not. So uh, Jesus quotes from all three parts of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings, Luke 24. When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he thought all the Old Testament was the word of God. He considered his own words scripture. Matthew 7, like we talked about it last week, build your house on God's words. No, my words, same thing. John 15, keep my commands. John 12, I speak the Father's words. Matthew 28, when you make them disciples, teach them what I have commanded. So the gospel are God's words. We also, he also said that the Holy Spirit's going to indwell us, and he's going to lead us into a lot of truth and revelation. And God, through the Spirit, is going to give the apostles what we need to know about him as we go into this new phase, and that's the New Testament. That's a whole different sermon. Actually, you're probably not struggling with that because most people like the New Testament. They don't like the Old Testament. But 2 Peter says this, And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul, right, who wrote half the New Testament, also wrote to you with the wisdom or inspiration God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. Yes, they are, Peter. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letter to mean something quite different, look, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. So Jesus taught us to believe every part of Scripture in the 66 books and even the countercultural parts, the parts that are miracles. Some people have a hard time with that. Jesus did miracles. And he taught the Old Testament miracles were real as well. Like Jonah spending time in the belly of a whale. Jesus says that really happened. Uh, the parts that include God's judgment. A lot of people say, you know, meek and mild Jesus would never admit, say that his, his father would do those things we see in the Old Testament. He did. He did. He says um, that Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom, Lot's wife turning into Saul, all those things happened. Jesus actually said his second coming is going to be a lot like that as well. Luke 17. Even the parts about sex. Right? A lot of people say Jesus never said anything about sex, so we can kind of do whatever we want. No. Just in Matthew 5 alone, he talks about adultery, lust, divorce, remarriage, and sexual immorality, which is a technical term that he uses to mean all form of sex outside of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. He grounds marriage in Genesis 1 in um, Matthew Five, between one man and one woman for life. And he actually lifts up singleness and sexlessness or celibacy as a valid way and a, a way to flourish in life, which our culture says that's impossible. 
you can't be whole and flourish if you can't have sex with whoever you want to. Jesus says, oh, you can in Matthew 19, and he also lived that way. And I could go on. But what does Jesus have to say about the Bible? In answer to the question, did God really say? Jesus' resounding answer is yes. God did really say. If the vital, authoritative, coherent, inspired, purposeful, and countercultural canon of Scripture says it, Jesus says to believe it and obey it for God's glory and for our good. And that was foundational for me. And that's not going to answer all the questions that you have about the Bible. It doesn't even answer all the questions that I have about the Bible. But it's a good foundation, a good starting point. Because now when I and when you come up with a doubt or a problem or a hurdle with the Bible, what you know is that, you know what, it's not the Bible's fault. (laughs) It's not the Bible's problem. It's my problem. It's my interpretation or my assumptions. Or honestly, it's because I don't, I don't, I'm kind of uncomfortable with what God has to say. And at some point, it comes down to faith, you know? I was thinking about this today. We were talking this, about this as a teaching team, even yesterday. But, like, if, if you have faith and really believe that God did something as crazy as this, like, four or 5,000-year rescue plan for a sinner like you and that he loves you, that's crazy in and of itself. But that he sent his son to live the life you couldn't and die the death that you should have. And that dude got up from the grave and he's forgiven you from your sins and longs to spend eternity with you on the new heavens and the new earth, if you have faith in that, can't you just have faith to believe that, yeah, he's strong enough and wise enough and powerful enough to record everything we need about him in a book. And it's true and we can trust it. So hopefully this week you'll begin to approach this Bible a little bit differently. Hopefully you'll pick it up with a little bit more honor a little bit more wonder, and you'll actually read it, like in context. And when you do that, I promise you, if you do that, you'll see it is not 66 different books filled with 66 different truths. It's one book with 66 inspired perspectives on one story and one truth, and his name's Jesus. And the purpose of all of it is to bring you face to face with him and his forgiveness, and his transformation. And we're going to talk about that next week. But if if you want to know more information about that, we would love to talk to you about it after services. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us everything we need to address our doubts and our questions. Oh, thank you for your goodness that you don't want us to walk around without knowing. So Father, I pray that if we do have doubts, if we do have questions, that's okay. But that we go to your word to find the answers instead of other places. (laughs) And would you meet us when we go to your word? We're in awe of how good you are to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.